turn with me to the book of James. As a church, we have been going through James the past weeks. Uh, This morning we are at James chapter 5, looking at the first six verses. So James chapter 5, reading from verse 1. This is God's word. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pause and pray and ask for God's help. Loving God, we're thankful for the privilege of meeting around your word again. And again, we simply ask that your spirit would take the truth of your words and plant it deep within our hearts. God, we long to hear truth. We long to hear from you today. So may we come hungry for your words, and may we leave here with our souls more satisfied, having fed on your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, people often say money talks, and it's true, isn't it? Money talks. Our attitude to money, how we gain money, the way we use money speaks to us about our hearts. And I think generally we're, we're not great about talking about money and we can feel uncomfortable talking about income and how much money we have. We can feel even less comfortable being challenged about how we spend our money. We know by now that this has no back doors um, when it comes to exposing our hearts. And this week, he pushes us to think about wealth. James, the past few weeks, has been teaching us what it looks like to live humbly before God. He showed us at the beginning of chapter 4 that the solution to quarrels and fights is humility. The last time we were in James, we looked at, we, we saw the solution to an arrogance or a presumptuousness over our times and plans is humility. And there James was challenging those making plans. He was challenging those that made plans without any thought for God and the life beyond this life. 
And similar here at the beginning of chapter 5, James challenges those whose security is in money, wealth, possessions. Those who are proud of what they have, what they've gained, and living as if this life is all there is. I believe here James is addressing unbelievers when he says, Come now, you rich. Addressing wealthy unbelievers, probably landowners. Now, there is some debate here as to whether the rich James refers to are believers or unbelievers. Some believe he has to be writing to believers as he has been addressing the church all along, and it would seem too random now to turn and address unbelievers. Also, the come now is the same as come now in verse 13 of chapter 4, where he was clearly addressing believers. But despite that, there are quite significant differences with the passages here. Now, we know before that James has brought harsh reality and challenge to believers several times. But with that, there has always been a call to change and repent. Think again of of how we've come through chapter 4. At the beginning of chapter 4, James addresses quarrels and fights in the church. He says the root problem is a divided heart. And the answer to that is to Humble yourself, resist the devil, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, draw near to God. Or when he addresses the sin of arrogance, he says, this is what you're doing, you're planning arrogantly, but then this is what you should do. Chapter 4, 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. But here at the beginning of chapter 5, James seems to be denouncing the wicked, those opposed to God, with no challenge to repent or change. Now, we've got to ask, if James is speaking about unbelievers opposed to God, why would he address believers in this way? Well, many commentators will lend this to the prophets example, Isaiah 13, the prophet speaks judgment on Babylon. He says there in Isaiah 13, he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Now these are words spoken about Babylon, but spoken to Israel. The prophet is denouncing, condemning the nations, but delivering the words to God's people. And the words of James chapter 5, verse 1, they they use very similar language. They say, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And I believe James's purpose here is that believers can see how unbelievers view, gain, and use money. So in turn, they can learn how God's people should view, 
gain and use money humbly before God. James wants to prevent these believers from the pride that Paul speaks about in 1 Timothy 6, 17. Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, as he denounces the unbelieving rich, he gives three warnings or pitfalls to the believers he is writing to. So let's look at these now together and see how money talks to us this morning. Now, the first pitfall is hoarding. So, who are the hoarders among us? Who holds on to things because they're just too good to give away? They just might come in useful someday, or we just can't bear to part with it. I was chatting to my mum on the phone the other day, and I said, Mum, what are you up to today? She said, oh, I'm just sorting through some stuff, and I found some of your hair. I said, really? This is extreme hoarding. Poor mum. Her definition of clearing out is taking everything out of a cupboard, giving it a good clean, and placing everything back in to the same cupboard again. Now I can't talk. We've moved house a couple of times in recent years. The first time we moved, we did a good clear out. We had very little in the roof space of our new house. We meant to, we meant to move then three years later, and of course we couldn't get into the roof space. There was so much stuff in it. Look at what James says in verses two and three. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Set up treasure in the last days. Now the little phrase in the last days is referring um, to these days we are currently living in, waiting the return of Christ to judge the world. These people James is speaking about, they, they have stored up wealth, money, possessions, completely ignorant of the fact that Christ will return to judge. They're a bit like the rich fool that we thought about the last time we were in James. The rich fool who hoards all his wealth in barns with no thought of eternity or judgment from God. See, these people, they're so assured and so secure in their wealth that they fail to see the things that matter most. You see, when it really counts, um, riches, wealth, possessions, they can do nothing for us. Because the truth is, we will all leave this world. We will all face judgment from Christ. And we will not take one single thing with us. Riches will not last beyond this life. 
James says, your riches have rotted, your garments are, are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. It's interesting, James uses the present tense. I think what he's trying to say is that riches, even in this life, have no real value. It's as if they've already rotten and corroded. The prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 7, and here he's speaking of the day of the Lord's return. And this is what he says. He says, they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. So, so it's almost like the people, they're coming to God in judgment and, and they're casting their riches before the Lord saying, look at all I've gained. Look at my value and worth. And how does the Lord respond? The Lord says in Ezekiel 7, their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. We remember Jesus' teaching from Matthew 6. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. You see the point? You focus on the earthly at the expense of the heavenly. You focus on the temporary at the expense of the permanent. Believers today, what is money saying to us here? Well, money is saying, don't hoard me. Don't be hoarders. Don't hold on to things that have no use or purpose. I think that's the principle for us here. I said about, you know, Emma and I moving house. And when we moved that first time, there were things that, that never made it out of boxes. And sometime later, we, we went to the roof space to sort through some of those boxes. And we actually laughed at ourselves as we began to open some of these boxes. Laughed at the things we took pride in, the things we placed value upon, the things that we couldn't let go because, well, they just meant so much to us. And I remember opening this, this box of just ornamental tat, I'll call it, and we laughed at ourselves at how much care we had taken to wrap up these things to protect things that had seemingly lots of value. And of course the reality is they're worth absolutely nothing. I don't know if you've ever watched the program um, Sort Your Life Out. So there's a team who um, come into house, a house of hoarders and they, they help them to sort out their house. It's a great program to watch, actually, to make you feel like your own house is tidy. Um, but what they do is they take every item from the house and place every item out in a warehouse. And the family then has five days to half all of their belongings. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about this and wondering... If we took all of our belongings, placed them in a warehouse, 
and took away everything that had no real use or purpose, I wonder how much stuff we would be left with. And I wonder too, are we uncomfortable talking about wealth and possessions because actually we really do want to hold on to as much as we can. We really do place value on stuff that has no value and we really do get comfort and from security from the stuff that we own. So don't hoard your wealth. Put it to good use, primarily to advance the gospel. Think of the parable that Jesus told about the talents or the bags of gold. Where a man gave, he gave five to one servant, two to another, and one to another servant. Now each of these amounts was a considerable amount of money. And the master finally returned. He went off, came back, and the one who had been given five made five more. The one who had been given two made two more. And the master was pleased, saying to those servants, Well done, good and faithful servant. But the servant who was given one, he went and hid his talents, and he actually blamed the master for being harsh, saying he was afraid to do anything with it. But the master condemned the sermon, or sorry, the servant. And Jesus tells this parable again in the context of God's final judgment. You see, the servant hoarded what he had when he should have been prepared to take risk and invest what he had been given. Now, not all of us will be gifted with the same income or resources, but each of us have the responsibility to put what we have been given to good use and to gospel use. James is not saying, and I think this is important, James is not saying you cannot be a wealthy Christian. But I believe what he is saying is that whatever wealth you are gifted, don't hoard it, but put it to good use. I have a book called um, City Lives. It's a great book. It tells a story of, of high flyers in London. People on big salaries, uh, and it's really about how they, their faith is practiced in the workplace. One of them is a man called Akil. He had an Indian background, came to faith in Christ, and uh, worked his way up in an investment bank to the role of global head of consumer. So he's involved in negotiating multi-billion pound deals, and so his salary is going to reflect that. But he speaks about um, just the challenges that faith brings, and how when he came to faith that, that he had to view everything differently, particularly his work life. And he says that to do that, he had to constantly remind himself of the return of Jesus Christ. But I think what he says about wealth is helpful to us here. And I quote him on this. He says, I don't see my wealth as independent of faith or in conflict with it. Wealth is not a bad thing. 
It is a resource entrusted to me by God for his purpose and to enable his work. My wealth is God's wealth for which I am a steward on his behalf. I have prospered because God has chosen to let me prosper rather than any merits on my part. I'm accountable to God at the end of the day for all the resources he has entrusted to me. So what I need to do is to master my wealth and not be mastered by it. That is a constant struggle, and I'm sure we can all identify with that. But the Bible tells us very clearly that we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and money. So whatever you have, invest in God's eternal purposes. Second pitfall, and much more briefly, is oppression. We see this in verse 4. Verse 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It seems here there are wealthy landowners who are employing farm workers, but they're not paying them what they should be. They're happy to withhold pay so they themselves can increase in wealth. This is possibly one of the many trials that has been mentioned earlier in James. But James says here, the cries of these workers have reached the Lord of hosts. Now, the Lord of hosts, it's it's a way to um, refer to the sovereign commander. And here, of course, it's not just referring to the sovereign commander of any army, but of the great army of heaven. The one who has every resource and power. And James is saying about these wealthy landowners, he's saying they need to remember who they are dealing with. They are dealing with the Lord of hosts, the sovereign over all the world. Now these landowners, they may look at the poor workers and think, well, they're nobodies, they're nothing. It doesn't really matter if they're not paid fairly. But these landowners have got to remember that the Lord of hosts is on the side of the poor and oppressed. And again, what we see here, that the similar idea coming through, that the desire for gaining in wealth has clouded out what is really important. One writer says, the cries of money are falling on deaf ears, but the cries of people are reaching the Lord. In these verses, we bring so much assurance and comfort to those suffering are being oppressed financially. And to the believer, money here is speaking, and it's saying simply, don't gain money unfairly. People are more important than money. Or to put it in the positive, deal with money honestly. As Paul says to the Romans, he says, pay to all what is owed to them doesn't matter if it's two pence or two million. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. 
revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul says, owe no one anything except to love one another. Third pitfall then is indulgence. We see this in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Now, luxury here is pointing to extravagant comfort. For the unbeliever, the one whose focus is wealth, of course, they become very self-focused. They will use their wealth to make their life as comfortable and as pleasurable as they can without any thought for anyone else. And I believe the more a person has this focus, spending on themselves, their comfort, their pleasure, the more luxury they feel they deserve. And the less they are aware of anyone else. They will even affirm to themselves, I deserve this. Look at what James says next. He says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, the reference here is, is to an animal getting fat in order to be slaughtered. Think of the poor turkeys, September and October, they're loving life, they're roaming free, they're being fed, they're feeling satisfied. November comes, they can't believe their luck because they're being fed more and more and boy, they're enjoying it. But December comes, well, the poor turkeys, they're beginning to regret eating so much. You see the point? People live feeding themselves on luxury and pleasure. Well, because that's all there is. But they're extremely short-sighted. Because this is not all there is. There is a day of slaughter. That is James directing us again to the day of God's judgment. And it's not far away. Think of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. The rich man feasted sumptuously every day. While poor Lazarus, he laid his gate longing to be fed. The two men both died. And the rich man was in torment. Lazarus was forever comforted. Now, the rich man wasn't in torment because he was rich, but because he was so focused on enjoying his riches that he failed to think of life beyond death and judgment from God. How short-sighted he was. And so here, money says to the believer, money is crying out to the believers, spend me, use me for others. We read from 1 Timothy, which we referred to earlier. So earlier we said that Paul encourages the believers not to be haughty, not to put their hope in riches, but on God. And he continues, instead the believers are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, and thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly 
life. You see, believers aren't so much concerned about living in luxury, but giving generously that others may live with greater comfort and ease. The world is ill-divided. None of us can deny that. But surely, surely if we had a greater grasp on eternity, if we lived less for the here and now, we would be quicker to give away and perhaps the world might just be a little less ill-divided. Well, finally, verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The righteous person here, I, I believe, is referring to is the believer in general. They have been condemned, murdered, perhaps indirectly through not being paid properly and not being provided for the very things that we've looked at here. But the response of the righteous person, they do not resist, they do not retaliate, they do not strive to bring judgment upon the oppressor because they know that God himself will bring judgment. Of course, we can't read this without thinking of Jesus Christ, our ultimate example. Jesus Christ was condemned and murdered unjustly and did not resist. And we think of Judas and Judas' role in the death of Christ. Well, what did Judas do? He placed more value and worth on money than on Jesus Christ. He was willing to betray, to hand him over to be killed. And there on the cross, God brought his judgment on Jesus Christ. The only righteous one died in the place of unrighteous sinners such as you and me so that we can be free of God's judgment and enjoy the eternal riches of heaven. If you're here today and you have not seen the value and worth of Jesus Christ because wealth or possessions or something else has clouded your thinking, may you look to him today to bring you security and pleasure and comfort like nothing else will. And for those of us here today who who know the value and worth of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, his sure return, to know that all that is Christ's is ours, we view, we gain, we use money differently from those who don't know the worth and value of Jesus Christ. We're not envious when others prosper. But rather, because of what we have in Jesus Christ, we're content with what we have. Remember, we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But we have, First Peter, we have an through Jesus Christ that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfearing. 
kept in heaven for us by God's power. So we were guaranteed it. And it will be revealed to us in the last day. Let's pray together.